Blues is a strange place. There's no way around it. The diner's on a highway that runs out of many places, bringing those that are running right on through with it. It's close to more than a few places of note. We're a stone's throw from some miraculous canyons, home to a heavily disputed waste facility the local tribe is always trying to get shut down. And some would say, a secret underground government base. Not to mention, the closest town has the state's largest cemetery and the world's largest corrugated box factory. Boy, I tells ya, most folks will pass through here at some point. Here, or a place just like it. I've been working here as a waitress and part-time cook for over a decade now. The name's Dorothy, but you can call me Dottie, handsome. If you got the time, why not have another round of coffee and listen to one of my tales? Tall as they seem, they're shorter than a stack of pancakes and twice as honest. About four years ago, I was on the early morning crew, coming in around 4 a.m. to get the baking started for the day. It was dark when I pulled my station wagon into the lot of sleeping truckers, but Luz was open and shone like a beacon to all weary travelers. Luz offered asylum and a fresh coffee to anyone with a shred of decency and 50 cents. And if I were honest, sometimes less than that would do. I had just put the donuts in the oven when we got our first non-sleeping customer of the day. A young man, covered in blood and black soot. And what appeared to be his unconscious pre-adolescent sister, who was similarly disheveled. I helped him lay her in one of our booths and got her some water. When I returned, he was sitting in front of her, his head in his hands. It took some to get him back with me, but when he looked up and saw my smile and the glass of water, he smiled back and just started sobbing tears leaving streaks down his blackened and worn face. I gave him some napkins and let him know where the bathroom was, telling him I'd keep an eye on the girl while he went and cleaned up. Then I got the girl a blanket and both of them a change of clothes from the lost and found. Yeah, that's right. Mother Mary and all that shit. But in a place like this, when you've seen what I've seen, that's just good service for people who need a moment of rest before things get a lot harder. I saw it in the boy's eyes when he looked up at me. He didn't believe in me, in this place. He had been fighting and running for so long, peace seemed an illusion, as did kindness. When he came back to the table, I had a hot cup of coffee and some breakfast waiting for him. He changed into the clothes and washed his face, and I could see now he was a young black man of about 20 much younger than his eyes had told me earlier. I asked him if he'd rather eat alone, but he asked me to stay, as he was enormously grateful for the clothes and for watching over his sister. He tells me his name is Castor, and the sleeping girl is his sister Polly. I told him the clothes and the coffee are free, but he's got to pay for the breakfast. Now I know he's not got any money, but I wanted to give him a reason to tell me his story, so I offered him a trade. Tell me why he's running, and what from, 
and I'll overlook the overeasies. He nodded and got that he didn't really have to, but I would listen if he needed to talk. And he did. Most that look like that do. Castor tells me they're running from powerful people. They're from the city, and Polly, well, Polly is special. That's why they want her. He always knew she was special, ever since she was little. But even before that, that's when he tells me his parents loved him, but he was an accident, a happy one. But with Polly, well, Polly was planned. She was made on purpose. Before he was born, his parents were hippies, free love types, whose adventures took them all around India and into South American jungles, learning from gurus and mystics alike. Sure, they did drugs. Everyone did back then. It was the time for it. These were the people. These ideas and hidden truths were going to take them into the future. But all that stopped when his mom got pregnant with him. They decided to move to America, determined to give their new baby the best chance at a good life. But it's never what it's supposed to be, is it? His dad struggled to keep work, and his mom was bored and miserable. They fought constantly while he grew up on TV dinners and TV heroes. When he was seven, his parents' marriage had nearly fallen apart when they were visited by an old friend from before he was born, a magic man from the jungles of Peru. Castor recalled to me an old man who smelled of spice and radiated warmth and inner peace. The man never spoke, not the entire time he shared tea with his parents, not when he lifted the small boy onto his lap and tickled his belly, not when he produced a small crystal star wrapped in colorful twine and gave it to the boy with a kindly smile. He doesn't remember the man leaving, but the following week, things started to get better. His dad got a job working for the government. His mom made some cool new friends with the kind of lifestyle she had always wanted. And now, his dad could afford it. Within a year, they were living large, or at least a lot better, and his mom was pregnant with Polly. The birth was really hard on his mother. She nearly died, but she was overjoyed to have her precious Pollyanna, whom everyone called Nut. The girl grew up mostly normal. She was quiet and shy, only really smiling when her brother would chase her, and then later when Castor would take her to school or pick her up for the long walk home. She was just a regular kid, but every year since her birth, for a few weeks at a time, the girl would go stay with her Aunt Mary in the country. Castor was never allowed to join her, and only met Mary a few times. He says it was weird, though, because before Polly was born, his father never mentioned having a sister. Castor didn't like Mary. He didn't know why at first. He thought maybe he was jealous of the attention his sister was getting, or curious about where she went and what she did, but it was something else. When Polly would go to Mary's, she'd be a happy little girl excited to play with dogs and horses. When she'd return, 
it was like the lights were turned off. She seemed lost, vacant, distant. He could hear her crying at night for weeks after she would return home, but his parents just acted as if she was fine. She wasn't fine. She wasn't okay. But year after year, they would send her. When she was eight, she came home with her arm in a cast, Aunt Mary telling us she broke it falling off a horse. He found her crying at night holding her broken arm, and when he asked what was wrong, she'd tell him she'd been dreaming, terrifying nightmares of being strapped to tables and cut open. She dreamt of tall men in suits and doctors speaking in hushed tones, and monsters crawling inside her. She told him she could still feel them moving, and then she looked down at her arm, half expecting to see it writhing. The next day he told his father about the dreams. Said he didn't think Polly should go to Mary's anymore, even if it was just dreams. His sister was falling apart. Dad disagreed, said she was building character, that a broken arm was nothing to worry about when you're that young. It happened to him too but Castor says he could tell something was up. His father wouldn't discuss it any further. So every year, Polly goes back, and every year, she comes home with another serious, half-explained injury that is accepted and ignored. All the while, the girl is becoming more withdrawn. She can't keep weight on, she barely sleeps and is failing in school, and her brother can't make her smile anymore. Then last year, Polly turned 12 and came home with internal bleeding that kept her in the hospital for three weeks, during which he was not allowed to see her, but he called her every night, and even though she didn't speak anymore, he would talk to her, tell her about his life, his friends, school, anything to keep her with him. When they finally released her, he saw why they wouldn't let him near her. She looked like she'd been in a car accident. Her face and hands were covered in cuts and bruises. His parents were absent and unconcerned. Their little nut just needs to get a little tougher. They assured him she was only becoming stronger for her struggle. That's when Castor had had enough. He wasn't going to let them kill his sister. He decided this year he would get her well, and when they came to take her again, he wouldn't let them. Last week, he woke up with a bad feeling and crept into his sister's room. She was gone. Panicked, he began searching for her, looking outside just in time to see her being shoved into a big black sedan with Mary. He knew he had one chance, so he moved fast. He threw on his jacket and ran out the side door, grabbing his bike on the way. Then he followed them, hanging back while they drove out of the city to a small farmhouse surrounded by miles of forest and fields. They took Polly inside and from a window he watched as they strapped her thrashing body to a gurney, puncturing her frail arms with needles. After she was out, one of the men in suits opened a panel in the wall and pressed some buttons. In astonishment, Castor saw the wall fall away, revealing an open elevator door, which they brought Polly onto and descended, leaving the room empty. 
so Castor broke in and found the panel on the wall. He didn't know what buttons to use, so he just smashed the whole pad. It brought the elevator back up, but it also set off some sort of security warning. He knew they would be coming, but he had to find her, so he got on the lift and hit the one button inside, and the elevator went down. What seemed like forever. Or maybe it just feels like that when you're trapped, without a plan. When it opened, he told me he was in a lab. He got real quiet, then looked around the diner. I let him know it'd still be an hour before our regulars started to show up and the truckers got ready to hit the road. Relaxing, he began to describe the horrors he saw there. He told me there were dozens of rooms with children locked up inside. But in some rooms, there were monsters. Or at least that's what he said, color draining from his face. The things he'd seen in those rooms must have touched his mind with darkness, for his face almost froze in fear, remembering it. He went on to tell me, they looked like giant wolf spiders nested in a hole made of dark fibers. They hummed, and the sound carried over the webs, amplifying in his brain, until he felt like tiny insects were truly feasting on it. He had fallen over in horror and pain, locked there in some mental torment, when he heard her voice. Polly was calling out to him through the noise. She was telling him to resist, to listen to her voice, to focus on it, and little by little, it became louder than the pain in his head, and he was able to pull himself away from the rooms with the bugs. She told him to hurry. They were coming. He found her. She was in a large lab at the end of the hall. When he peeked through one of the round windows on the door, he could see she was locked into some sort of device, a metal cage frame around her head with tubes and diodes sticking out, and wires running to a huge computer next to the chair she was in. Mary and the man who had called the elevator were there too, talking and taking notes. Mary went to make some adjustments on Polly while the man sat in front of a screen that appeared to have some increasingly strange readings on it. The lines on the screen began to vibrate and spasm while Mary looked at Polly and began backing away from her a terrified look in her eyes. The man was screaming at her to up the dosage. The lights began to flicker. The computer caught fire, exploding out, knocking the man down. Mary was screaming as the lights went out. And then, all he could hear was wet, tearing noises, and some dark, abyssal growl that rose into that of a young girl's laugh his sister's lap. Then it got very quiet. Castor went into the room and using the light on his phone, found his sister standing over the eviscerated corpses of Mary and Mr. Man. She was covered in blood. When he touched her and she looked up at him, she smiled and said, let's get out of here, brother. Smoke was filling the room so they ran. On the way to the elevator, they tried to stop them. But Polly, 
she killed them. One after one, their heads exploded in front of him. Slimy, black tentacles emerged from her back, her mouth, her hands, and rushed out to tear apart anything that got between them and their way out of there. As he recalled it, he touched his face, then looked down at the sleepy form of his sweet sister. When they get to the elevator, Polly puts Castor inside and tells him to go up. She will be with him soon. Then she hits the button and runs off and down the hall, where all the other children were being held. He can barely see her the moment she steps off because the entire place is beginning to fill with dark black smoke. When he gets to the top, the doors open to a hail of bullets, and everything goes dark and cold. Sometime later, he comes to, and he's fine. No bullets, no death, but he's laying on a floor, surrounded by an entire room full of children. Some of them look normal, but some had weird black limbs that ended in claws or hooves or tentacles, but none of them said anything. They just left him there with a pile of bodies in an increasingly smoky house. In front of the elevator, he found Polly. She was out cold, but breathing. So he searched the bodies for some car keys and then the driveway for a matching car, putting his sister in the front seat. He knew he couldn't go home. His parents would have known about what was happening. If they did, they'd be waiting for him. And this time, little Nut was in no condition to save him. He didn't know what else to do, so he just started driving. He tells me he thinks that was three days ago and that he's been driving the entire time. He's surprised when I tell him where we are. He doesn't think it's possible to have gone that far on one tank of gas. So I tell him, if that's the miracle you're disbelieving, I'd start checking your torso for bullet holes. That's about when Polly yawned and sat upright, still covered in the filth of their escape, her pretty childish face flecked with blood and gore, but smiling. She looked at Castor, and then at me, and said, Oh cool, I could eat. You got pancakes? I laughed out loud. I couldn't help it. She was a charming little devil. I got up and headed to the kitchen, while the two embraced and cried in each other's arms. When I returned, she'd gone to clean herself up, but he was smiling and staring into his coffee, tears still streaming down his face. I put down the pancakes and asked him what was next. He tells me he still doesn't know, but it's okay, because she does. She knows where they need to go next, and he's determined to go with her and keep her safe. I just nodded and let him know it was on the house, as the first of the truckers came in to take her morning shit. I got pretty busy soon after, and only really caught a glimpse of them leaving, arm in arm, beaming like the light of a new dawn. I still wonder what happened to them from time to time, but that's not my story to tell. I just got to see this one little part, and now I've shared it with you. Don't tell anyone, okay? Now how about some cherry pie and a refill on that coffee?